How was the Opportunity Zones initiative created in the first place? And why is this program so radically different from previous place-based policies? Find out next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. And today I'm on site at the 2019 SALT Conference at the Bellagio Hotel in Las Vegas. And joining me on today's episode is John Lettieri, co-founder and president of the Economic Innovation Group. John, thank you for joining me and welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, John, I'm excited to be talking to you today because you're one of the individuals who started all of this. Your organization is essentially where the Opportunity Zones program was born. And the panel that you're on this morning is all ready to nominate you for a Nobel Prize, I understand. That was one of the unexpected benefits of coming to SALT this year was uh, the Nobel Prize nomination. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been fun to be a part of this and to see how uh, this journey that we started taking years ago has really taken off into a big national movement. Yeah, absolutely. And so and it was relatively quick, the path to EIG was formed in 2015, I believe. And less than three years later, the Opportunity Zones legislation policy that, that your organization created was passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Uh, but can you tell me more about EIG's beginnings and how it was formed? Yeah. We really formed the organization in 2013 and uh, didn't end up launching in 2015. So we had a long process to iterate and develop the, uh, the core structure of the organization, the idea of what we would end up uh, becoming. Uh, but but in short, this was a, uh, the, you know, the co-founders of the group are Sean Parker, who's a, a well-known uh, technology entrepreneur and investor, uh, uh, partner Steve Glickman uh, and uh, and myself, and our goal was to start a new type of research and advocacy organization to, to really fill a gap in the Washington policy environment that uh, that we thought was really important to fill, but didn't have uh, didn't have enough uh, voices in the mix to really help policymakers understand how to deal with certain economic challenges and particularly the challenge of what do you do for communities that are uh, even in the midst of a big national economic growth cycle are being left behind. Uh, So we started by looking at the data and looking at uh, how this recovery period from the Great Recession differed from previous recoveries in in terms of the geography of economic growth. Uh, So you saw this record amount of concentration in terms of where jobs and businesses were being created uh, in a record number of places that were really seeing no recovery for whom the recession just kept on going. And uh, we saw that and really thought that was gonna be a compelling economic and political challenge for our country and we also saw that the tools we were using in terms of public policy to respond to that challenge were either non-existent or completely inadequate. And so it seemed to us to be a good time to revisit the idea of uh, place-based policy. How do we think about the economy in terms of local markets? And in particular, how do we improve access to capital and give investors a nudge to look at markets they might be overlooking? Uh, because our fundamental belief was uh, there's a lot more untapped potential in American communities than what the market has priced. Uh, and that if we get investors to take a first look, uh, and to give them an incentive to connect with entrepreneurs and uh, and businesses in these areas, that uh, that you can see dramatic progress in a relatively short period of time. Uh, but it required a new type of policy tool, and so that's where Opportunity Zones were born. It was really out of uh, the birth of this organization as one that wanted to focus on uh, how do we boost economic dynamism and how do we broaden the playing field of places that are really benefiting from national economic growth. It's a place-based policy, which has been tried 
over the decades in numerous forms, but this is, I, I believe, this is the first one that's that's really been as flexible as it is. Unlike new markets tax credit or low-income housing tax credits or empowerment zones, this one is very flexible, very few hurdles. There's no central agency that you have to go through. It's the the funds can self-certify, so it's it's a lot more open-ended in that regard. Uh, John, can you? Tell me a little bit about your personal background, though. How did you get to where you are today? So I've worked in public policy for most of my career, and I've uh, worked everything from foreign policy to, uh, to tax policy, uh, trade policy, uh, and, uh, and I've worked in the private sector as well. And this EIG really, EIG really represents a, um, uh, issues that I've been passionate about for a long time, but until we started EIG, had not had a chance to work on directly, which is, uh, number one, again, how do you how do you make capitalism work for communities that uh, have historically struggled, uh, and how do you boost the dynamic features of the economy, entrepreneurship, uh, healthy churn in the local labor markets, geographic mobility for workers, uh, skilled immigration, things that help our economy stay fresh and vital and new uh, on an ongoing basis. And these have been historic strengths of our economy, but they are struggling now. And so the, 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 the chance to launch EIG was a chance to really work with more focus on issues that I've been passionate about for a long time and to do it with partners who are really incredible uh, people. Uh, which includes not just the founding team, but also this diverse group of economists, of business people, of policy experts from around the country, who are all very different in their political worldview, but passionate about these issues and really want to see us make progress on them. Uh, so uh, so it's very, I'm very fortunate to be a part of this, this thing that really started as a grand experiment. We had no idea uh, whether or to what extent the, the concept of EIG as a different type of organization would pan out in the real world. Uh, we certainly... Uh, we're aspirational about the idea of being able to move policy, but as you said earlier, to go from new new organization launching in 2015 to our feature concept becoming law by the end of 2017, uh, I think that was a little ahead of schedule for e- even our high hopes. Yeah, pretty impressive how quickly that that was able to succeed for you. When did you first meet Steve Glickman, and, and when did Sean Parker come into the picture? Yeah, St- Steve and I have known each other uh, going back quite a ways. We, uh, back in both of our previous gigs, we worked... Uh, on opposite sides of the table, but collaboratively on uh, some policy issues around trade and foreign direct investment. So he was part of the Obama economic team. Uh, I was running policy for a trade association at the time. And uh, our our goal was uh, to find new ways to boost inward investment from around the world into the American economy, to make the U.S. economy more attractive and competitive for for inbound investment, uh, and to look at the slate of policy and regulatory issues that could be getting in the way uh, or that could be enhanced, uh, uh, and and to to put some new pieces in place, new policies in place that uh, would help boost the American economy via investment. So there's some parallels here, actually, to what we're talking about with Opportunity Zones, which is thinking about how capital markets work, how investors operate, and how to connect capital with communities uh, and certain types of economic needs. Uh, so that's how Steve and I met. Uh, and we had kind of always said we wanted to do something together. We, we had bookmarked the idea of collaborating. And then he got connected through a mutual friend to Sean. Uh, and then this quickly became a project that uh, that we took on together. And uh, and again, launched in 2013 as really with, with the ambition of being a, a distinct type of policy organization, one that was uh, not beholden to any particular party uh, or industry, and that was uh, a free agent. And that's really the, the, the key attribute that we, we set out to, uh, to embody was let's, let's go where the data lead us. Let's, let's be free agents for good ideas and to offer a totally different value proposition when it comes to policymakers who are used to dealing with 
industry groups who have self-interest, uh, and there's nothing wrong with that, uh, but it limits the scope of what you can do with, uh, with a policymaker if you're just doing it on behalf of your client list or uh, on behalf of your, your membership organization. Uh, for us, we wanted to get in the trench with policymakers who cared about these challenges and offer them with no strings attached. This is, this is we want to work together and help you succeed on a bipartisan basis. Uh, so that tr proved to be a very powerful model and one where Steve's background in democratic politics and mine in Republican politics uh, came in handy as an asset because we provided this very interesting uh, kind of left-right dynamic that made our appeal as an organization much broader than it would have been otherwise. Yeah, the, uh, the Investing in Opportunity Act had really broad bipartisan support. The Tax Cuts and Jobs Act was passed along party lines, but, but the, the Opportunity Zones statute itself received a lot of bipartisan support leading up to its passage. Um, when you founded in 2013, so you didn't have really have an agenda, you just were working on different ways to stimulate the economy in some of these distressed areas. What, uh, w when did you first like come up with the idea of Opportunity Zones? When did that first start to form as an idea that could be worth pursuing? Well, this really goes back to Sean Parker. Sean had a, a, a long-term interest in, in rethinking how uh, how we do foreign aid and how uh, investment capital uh, may be a much more powerful uh, 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 impactor of, of foreign markets that need development and need economic growth than, uh, than the traditional model of foreign aid. Uh, and so this was the seed planted in his mind. And then you kind of fast forward to when uh, all of us got connected. He really had this idea of, of rethinking domestic policy along those lines as well. And uh, and in particular when it comes to the way incentives interact with uh, capital gains. Uh, investors who have capital, that are unrealized capital, uh, that, uh, that could be redeployed into these types of domestic markets, essentially domestic emerging markets, much the way that we think about uh, foreign emerging markets. But there hadn't been really a policy tool to, to, to aggregate capital and to focus it in those types of areas. So the seed of the idea starts with Sean and then uh, grows as we put this organization together uh, from the beginning, intending to uh, start to think about policy along these lines. Uh, but it was just the seed of an idea at the time and really required a lot more iteration and stress testing before we came up with what I'd call a viable concept. Uh, and we did that in concert with a number of economists, a number of investors around the country, working closely with a number of policymakers, even before the organization launched, uh, to, to, to beta test these ideas and see how they resp respond to it. Could we get a, a broad bipartisan uh, amount of interest and, and backing? And then by the time we actually rolled the bill out, uh, we knew that we had a pretty good product that had gone through a lot of those iterations and stress tests. Uh, so we were pretty confident it was going to be viable. We just didn't know how quickly it would find a home and how quickly, in an environment where there is a lot of political gridlock, even good ideas uh, languish. And so uh, that was the open question to us. How successful could we be as a new organization in taking a new idea and moving it through a, a very difficult process? Uh, and so, uh, so the, but the idea itself traces all the way back to, to pre-organization, uh, Sean's view of the world and how, uh, how to move capital into certain types of social and economic needs. And in early 2016, nearly two years before the legislation was passed, actually, uh, EIG published the Distressed Communities Index study, which is, I guess, was this one of your stress tests just to see what numbers you could come up with and, and where the capital was needed most. Could you tell me a little bit more about that study and, and how it led or how it was kind of, um, how it concurrently shaped the Investing in Opportunity Act and the, and the Opportunity Zones sure. uh, legislation? 
Yeah, sure. The, uh, the Distressed Communities Index was our first big research product as an organization, and it was really born out of something very simple, which was we were trying to describe to people uh, the, the, the scope of communities around our country that were being largely left out of national economic growth. But we were finding a hard time, finding it difficult to really make this a reality to people we were talking to, both policymakers and press and, and other stakeholders. And we thought there must be some kind of diagnostic product, some kind of research effort that's already been done to quantify this and to map it out around the country. And when we looked for that product, we really couldn't find one, uh, and certainly not one that met what we had in our heads. And so it was out of that necessity that we came up with the idea for, let's do our own measure of economic well-being, and let's use it to heat map the country in terms of the state of economic growth and opportunity. And so out of that, we, we found just when we put out the, the beta version of that product, it was making front page news actually in this market, in Las Vegas. It made, it made front page news uh, uh, in 2015 because they were still feeling the effects of the recession in a very, um, a, a very visceral way. And now they had a tool that helped them quantify what their community was enduring. And we were finding that same story around the country, that people were really responding to the data because it reflected what they were experiencing but had not yet found a way to quantify and, and to communicate to their readers or their constituents. And so that product really did help to inform the development of Opportunity Zones because it, it, for the first time in a very definitive way, put a marker down for just how much of our country is being left out of the economic recovery. Uh, that was hugely motivating to policymakers. They, they saw that product as a way to communicate back to their constituents and say, this is where we rank as a district or as a state. This is the number of distressed zip codes we have in our in our state uh, or in our region. Uh, here's, here's the lack of business growth. Here's the lack of job growth. Uh, and to be able to put numbers to that and to, and to show the scope of it, and then to visualize it because it's an interactive product, uh, that turned out to be an incredibly powerful tool. Uh, and one of our first you know, milestones as an organization was when we released that full product, uh, we got a big New York Times story out of it and it shut down our website. Uh, so it, it reminded us how much of a startup we still were as, a, as an organization that uh, we were unprepared for the success that we were having uh, in, in getting attention to our work. Uh, and that has stayed our flagship product. We've iterated that and, and built on that every year. And it continues to be one of the most important legacies of the organization is providing data uh, and open sourcing that data to researchers around the country. So we license it to academics and nonprofits, and over 100 other organizations have used our data to do their own research, which is a big part of our values as an organization. Good. Uh, that's a good problem to have when the New York Times shuts down your website, yeah, I guess. Enjoy that. <laughs> Absolutely. Can you tell me a little bit about the, the process of enacting the Opportunity Zones legislation, how involved your group was? And it, as I said before, it was passed as a very small part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. But can you take me, take me behind the scenes for a minute, take our listeners behind the scenes, and can you explain from your perspective how the sausage got made and, and what were some of the challenges in getting it across the finish line? Well, the, the first challenge was the most important, which was finding policymakers to work with that really believed in the vision of Opportunity Zones and cared deeply and intrinsically about uh, the nature of that challenge, of, of communities being left behind and of using market forces to, uh, to bring more hope and opportunity to, uh, to those same places and people. And so we were incredibly fortunate that when we went to Senator Tim Scott, Senator Cory Booker, uh, Congressman uh, Pat Tiberi, Congressman Ron Kind, uh, those were our top four. When we when we drew up the list of members that we wanted to work with, who we thought both understood the material and really believed in and had a legacy of leading on these issues and had a lot of credibility with their colleagues 
on uh, as leaders in this space. Those were the top four we wanted to work with. All four of them said, yes, we're in. We want to do this with you. Uh, and so that partnership of uh, as an outside group working hand in glove, providing data, providing resources, providing expertise to a bipartisan and bicameral group of policymakers who were deeply motivated to make sure we could bring these new tools to communities and, and to connect capital and community in a new way, uh, that proved to be very powerful because those members do have a lot of stature with their colleagues. They, uh, when, when they buy into something, it makes it easier to get the next person to sign on because, if, again, if those members are signed on, it must be, must be a good idea. Uh, so, so they did a ton of the heavy lifting uh, on every front. They, they pitched it to their colleagues. They spoke about it in the press. They wrote about it. They talked it up back home. And we just tried to make their job easier. We tried to give them data. We tried to work with their colleagues. We opened a lot of doors and uh, not, knocked on a lot of doors to, uh, to recruit support. And what you saw emerge was the broadest possible coalition of policymakers from the left and right, uh, from every region of the country. Uh, tax policy is not where you get a lot of that kind of collaboration these days. And so it was an uncommon spectrum of members who said, uh, we buy in. We, we, this, this represents the kind of challenges that we're dealing with in our own communities. And, and we like the idea of bringing this new tool to the table. Uh, and so it was just putting one foot in front of the other. First, getting a bill introduced, which happened in 2016, and we knew nothing was going to pass in 2016. It was the last year of the Obama administration. Congress wasn't passing anything. It's an election year. So, but getting to that point allowed us to have a product to take around, and used, we used the Investing Opportunity Act as a vehicle to talk about the bigger challenge of how do we do more for communities that have struggled in the post-Great Recession economy. Uh, then in 2017, when the bill gets reintroduced for the new Congress, we thought we actually may have a window here because we know tax reform is coming, and our goal was to put this in a position where it would be a no-brainer. If you're going to do tax reform, you're going to do this once-in-a-generation overhaul of the tax code. How could you not include a bill that has nearly 100 co-sponsors from the right and left that's affordable for the taxpayer but very high impact for communities, and that was truly a policy innovation in this in this area? Uh, and that's exactly what happened. By the time it came. Uh, came time to really narrow down the list of issues that were going to be included in tax reform, this this bill was in great position. And then, again, it was up to our leadership, Tim Scott and, and the folks leading the bill in Congress, to, to muscle it across the finish line, which they did. And ultimately, the, the, you know, the lion's share of the credit really does go to Tim Scott because down the stretch, it was him putting his reputation and his political capital on the line that got it across the finish line when it really counted. Uh, but by that point, we had done a lot of legwork collectively as, a, as an organization, as a coalition of stakeholders, to get this thing in a good position to, to, to take advantage of that opportunity. Uh, so it really it goes all the way back to the idea is not enough, right? The execution matters. Like in all things in life, the execution really matters and who you have on the team really matters. And in this case, we had the best possible collection of public sector and private sector uh, teammates to work with. Right. It was the right idea at the right time. And you had the right people behind it also. So that's very helpful. What was it like for you and your colleagues at EIG when that night in December, when the uh, when the act was passed, was there a big party there? What? T t tell me about tell me about that night. Uh, it was it was surreal. There wasn't a big party. I think there was a small party. Maybe a few toasts were made, and uh, uh, we, we were we were exhausted and very happy, uh, and also in a bit of disbelief that this that this had happened and that we had we had climbed the mountain. Uh, but I think we also had a sense, even at the time, that the hard work was nowhere close to being over. Getting the bill passed was its kind of like getting to halftime in a football game. If you want to win the game, you've got to win the second half as well. And that's where the regs come in, because taking the idea from uh, a legislative reality to a practical tool that can actually be used in communities requires regulatory work from the IRS and Treasury 
that we're still seeing, actually, even 16 months later, that that process is still underway. So it was by no means a done deal just getting the bill passed. As much of a, as much of a gratifying moment as that was, uh, we had some sense that you know, governors had to choose the zones and investors had to be uh, educated about this and people around the country had to be educated about it and the rules had to be written. So the, actually the harder work was what came after the bill uh, got done, which uh, is kind of hard to believe even, even now, but, uh, but that's been the case. And so the last year and a half has been very much focused on taking this and making it a practical reality uh, in the communities that it was intended to benefit. Yeah, so tell me about what EIG has been doing the past uh, year and a half now. What, what's, what's EIG's role been for the, you know, for the first few years of its existence? It was focused on passing this legislation. Now that it's been passed, you've shifted more to education and, and, and advocacy. Tell me a little bit about what, what you're doing over there. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that much of what we do is, uh, is think tank work. We do original research and uh, we put out studies and reports, which Opportunity Zones aside, has built a really big national reputation for our organization. We've, uh, we've been very fortunate to be able to capture a lot of attention on the economic research work that we've been doing. And, uh, and so that runs parallel to a lot of the work on the policy side, and it informs the work on the policy side, but, uh, but that's a substantial portion of what we do year in and year out. Uh, on the policy side, as you said, since the bill passed, we've been uh, very much focused on uh, implementation. How do we actually get the rules of the road so that Opportunity Zones can work the way they were intended to? So we've built a big national coalition of, of stakeholders, investors, philanthropies, uh, community organizations, uh, uh, from all these different sectors to help inform the rulemaking process. So we've submitted very detailed technical comment letters to Treasury and the IRS. Uh, we've uh, testified at congressional hearings and IRS field hearings, and uh, we've done a lot of that legwork to build the expertise at the agencies and help inform their process for how to how to write the rules of, of this new policy, which itself is a, a grand experiment, right? So there's no playbook for exactly how to do this. Uh, you have the statute, you have the legislative language, but a lot of dots have to be connected. There's a lot of connective tissue that has to be filled in. So we've been above all else focused on that because again if you don't get that part right passing the bill doesn't mean anything uh, so that's been our number one priority to date and now that we've gone through two big rounds of rulemaking uh, a lot of the work uh, on the opportunity zone side shifts to communities and intermediaries how do we help educate uh, even though we've been doing hundreds of conversations like these around the country conferences events uh, uh, roundtables to try to do the, the 101 of Opportunity Zones. Now that we have the rules, we have to go up to the, the, next, uh, the next level of expertise and make sure that all the different stakeholders in these communities are prepared to actually use this tool and, and to put it to, to effective use. Uh, and that's just Opportunity Zones. We also have work on uh, skilled immigration policy that we've just released that, uh, uh, much like Opportunity Zones would, uh, is designed to uh, connect places that are struggling with demographic headwinds uh, with skilled immigrants who want to live in those communities. So creating new programmatic doors to connect human capital with struggling communities, not just investment capital. Uh, we're also looking at ways to unlock the potential of the American workforce and the American entrepreneur uh, by, uh, by pushing for reforms to things like non-compete agreements, which uh, are used to really stifle innovation and stifle worker mobility. Uh, so we have a number of different things that we're working on in the policy and research space, but they all go back to the same core issue, which is how do you bring out the dynamic potential of the American economy and how do you lead with entrepreneurship and investment uh, into areas where we have a lot of potential, but we're not fully realizing that potential. Uh, for reasons that trace back in many cases to policy and regulation. Uh, so we, we're looking to expand all that work in the months ahead, uh, but nothing's going to be more important than getting Opportunity Zones right for the time being because, uh, because we have such a short window to define the scale and scope of what this policy is going to be. And the statute 
gave local leaders and state governors a lot of agency in determining which census tracts were deemed zones or nominated as zones. Can, can you tell me, from your point of view, how did the governors do overall with that authority? Were there any abuses in the system, or, or did, they, did they do a good job overall? Yeah, I'd say overall they did. Uh, Congress gave them a lot of latitude. They, they set some, um, some basic parameters for what types of communities could be opportunity zones. They had to meet a certain need threshold. But within that, they gave them latitude to choose. And so what you saw governors do was work with mayors and county officials and local community organizations to put together a selection process. And every state was a little different. I'd say anytime you have a big national decentralized effort like this, you're going to have uh, outcomes that... Uh, either make you scratch your head or make you wince in some cases. And I, I've definitely felt that when looking at some of the selections. Uh, but those are mostly on the margins. Those are mostly outliers. Uh, the vast majority of opportunity zones that were selected are fully in keeping with the spirit of the law. Uh, these are places that have, on average, a 29% poverty rate, a 44,000 median family income, which is well, well below uh, the national average. Uh, education attainment is much lower than the national average. Life expectancy is lower than the na- national average. You have all these, on all the need criteria, opportunity zones as an asset class of places um, live up to Congress's intent. They're high need, uh, high poverty, low income places, um, with some exceptions, right? So there are a few opportunity zones you look at and you kind of scratch your head. You're like, how come this is an opportunity zone, right? Absolutely. And it's, and it's a shame because that's, there's an opportunity cost to that. You know, that. The selection that went to a place that didn't need the incentive uh, came at the cost of another place that did because governors had to down-select out of that eligible pool. Uh, and I think it's easy to get distracted by those outliers, and certainly the, there's been a lot of attention to them, uh, and that's understandable. But what I hope doesn't happen is that those marginal selections take a, should not take away from the massive pool of communities that now have a new way to benefit, have a, no, a new way to connect with capital and a new way to spur economic growth and opportunity uh, for their local residents. And that really should be the primary focus right now when we talk about opportunity zones. We should be talking about uh, that vast pool of places that have largely been overlooked and disinvested for a long time, but still have a lot of potential to thrive. Uh, and I think if, if people take nothing else away from conversations like this, it's that the more that we get exposed to opportunity zone communities, the more that we see what's happening there, the more optimistic we are that uh, these are communities with a lot of potential that has been untapped. That's the whole thesis of Opportunity Zones, is if you give investors a nudge to look for investments and opportunities in non-traditional places, they'll find more than they expected to find. And that's exactly what's happening. Um, so I think this can be a transformative moment, uh, but, but it requires us to stay, to stay focused on, on what's really at, at stake here and not get distracted by even unfortunate outliers like some of the ones we saw uh, uh, governors select. Sure. So let's talk a little bit more about what's at stake here. The, the Distressed Communities Index... EIG essentially was measuring the effectiveness of the economic recovery. How did it affect more distressed parts of the country as opposed to wealthier parts of the country? How will EIG measure the effectiveness of the Opportunity Zones program, though? And what would need to happen for you to deem it a success? What are you looking for? Yeah. Well, you'd start with poverty and income. Uh, Those were the two fundamental criteria that were used in the selection process. And I think over time, if you see uh, poverty go down and uh, and uh, median incomes go up, uh, and if they do that in a way that uh, that accelerates the trajectory they were on before opportunity zones were were passed, 
that's, a, that's one way you can look at this as a starting point and say there seems to be an, an effect to being designated an opportunity zone for those communities. And one reason that uh, I'm optimistic we can chart this uh, in a very analytical way is that the places that were chosen are higher need than the places that were eligible but not chosen. So in other words, you had this pool of places, governors use their selection authority to skew generally towards higher need areas. And they were, by rule, they were able to select up to 25% of their low-income census tracts, is that correct? That's correct. And so that other 75% started in a better position than the opportunity zones that were selected. If over time you see opportunity zones dramatically exceed the places that were eligible but not selected, that would imply that the effect of being selected in opportunity zones was a very positive one for those communities. Uh, But I think you have to look across the whole board. I want to look at education attainment. I want to look at life expectancy and health metrics. Uh, uh, We want to look at uh, new home construction, new business starts. I think if there's one indicator that would tell us more than anything else about the health of opportunity zones over time, it's startup rates in those areas. Uh, and so, so again, there's, there's a number of different ways to slice it. And I think the benefit of a project like this is that you're going to get a ton of analytical work being done by think tanks, academics, organizations like ours, and the federal government itself is committed to evaluating the progress of these communities over time. And that's not just important for historical reasons, just to, to know what we've done. But it also should inform what we do next time. Uh, because this is not a perfect policy, as much as I'm fond of it. Uh, it uh, no policy is perfect. No human endeavor is perfect. Uh, and so it goes without saying that we're going to learn some lessons and should learn some lessons from this that can be rolled into the next exercise and make it even more effective than Opportunity Zones Round 1. And I hope there is an Opportunity Zones Round 2 because we shouldn't wait every 20 years before we introduce new policy ideas that can really help uh, uh, assist communities in a market-driven way. Uh, And our our track record is to wait a generation in between those policy measures. This gives us a chance to do it much more in real time. So as we have economic shocks to the system, as we see the industrial landscape change, uh, as different regions of the the country are going through uh, different types of challenges, Opportunity Zones can be a tool that helps them adjust and helps us ensure that prosperity is more evenly shared across American communities. The original Investing in Opportunity Act, the original bill that was introduced into the Senate and the House of Representatives called for a reporting requirement by the Treasury Department. That was stripped out of the of the final version that, that passed as part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Would you like to see the Treasury adopt some sort of a rep- reporting framework, and what do you think their options are for doing so? I, I think it's a no-brainer. Uh, I, I Honestly, I wish they'd done it already. I, I think it's a relatively straightforward thing to do, uh, and one that uh, doesn't do, doing so doesn't place an undue burden on fund managers or uh, uh, on anyone else in the process. Uh, I think it's pretty straightforward. We we know that fund managers, opportunity funds, are going to submit paperwork every year to the IRS. Give them some forms to check, uh, give some boxes to check and forms to fill out that tell us, generally speaking, where are you investing? What kind of categories of assets are you investing in? Is it businesses? Is it real estate? What type? Uh, how, how much are you investing? Uh, what, what zones are seeing investment? And, uh, and just give us some demographic data on opportunity zones that we can use in the aggregate over time to understand how much of this national mosaic of places are actually seeing inward investment. And what does that tell us, by the way, about the regulations themselves? Because one reason that programs fail is not just the policy side, it's the regulatory side. 
Are the rules too complicated to navigate? Do they disincentivize the behavior that the policy was intended to encourage? And just like policy, regs are never perfect. So we should learn the cause and effect of certain types of rulemaking on certain types of outcomes. And we can also understand where is this particular tool? Because we've, we've done this scattershot thing where governors have chosen 8,700 census tracts around the country and, and territories. Obviously, not all of them are equally uh, viable for Opportunity Zones investment. That goes without saying. But that's not a, in and of itself a sign of failure. That's a chance to be more successful in targeting tools like this that, again, the next time around, winnowing down to where does this particular tool work very well? What types of communities match up with it very well? What types of investments match up? The data will tell us that if we collect it. Uh, and then we can add additional layers of analysis on top of that. So that's what makes this exercise so important. And again, it's a relatively light lift for Treasury. So we hope to see that soon. They asked for uh, comment uh, on this in the latest round of rules. Uh, they asked for information and ideas, and uh, we have certainly not been shy about providing that to date, so we intend to do so again here in this next round. Now, I'm sure you'll be there at the hearing this upcoming July. Uh, and it is a complicated program, right, this Opportunity Zones program. We got that second tranche of IRS guidance back in April. What have been some of the biggest misconceptions that you've come across so far in, in your dealing with, with, uh, with this since, since the legislation was passed about a year and a half ago? I, I kind of liken this to... Uh, if, if somebody tried to say that baseball and football were the same game just because there's people on a field throwing a ball at each other, uh, we would all laugh at that, right? Obviously, these are, those are very different games. Uh, opportunity zones is not the same as enterprise zones or the same as new markets tax credit uh, or the same as any of these other programs. It's actually radically different, uh, top to bottom, radically different in structure. Uh, and so I think the biggest misconception is that this is just a slight iteration on previous attempts to use the tax code to encourage capital investment. Uh, and economic growth in underserved areas. It is an attempt to do those things, but it's a radical departure from the way that we've done it in the past. It's uh, scalable. It's flexible in terms of its use case. Uh, it's much more uh, uh, user-friendly in terms of investors can move at the speed of market opportunities and deploy capital without having to go through a federal government intermediary. Uh, it's lower cost to the taxpayer, lower risk to the taxpayer, meaning the federal treasury. Uh, so all of those are, and there's so many different layers to that, all of those are big fundamental design differences that I think set this up for success that we've never seen in other programs. Uh, so that's, that's one big misconception. I think people are still trying to understand exactly the scope and dimension of this and how, how much it differs from other policies. Another uh, pretty persistent uh, misconception is that this is primarily a real estate incentive uh, full stop. Uh, and I think that's driven by the fact that to date, without regulatory clarity, you certainly see more real estate investment than any other category because that's what's more straightforward. There are fewer unknowns and variables to worry about in real estate. That said, the centerpiece of this was always get capital into local operating businesses, new businesses and scaling businesses, and help drive job growth and, and wealth creation. So I think as people start to see the number of different things you can do using Opportunity Zones financing, manufacturing, tech startups, clean tech and clean energy, indoor agriculture, and then course, housing, industrial, all kinds of other use cases that are more oriented around the built environment, I think it's going to become clear pretty quickly now over time that uh, this is a much broader and more diverse policy tool than, than anything that people initially may have thought. So the new markets tax credit, that is a $3.5 billion a year program. It's capped at $3.5 billion a year, and there's a lot of hoops that you have to jump through, whereas the Opportunity Zones program is virtually limitless, the amount of capital. I guess EIG has cited the $6 trillion-plus figure, which is the unrealized capital gains as of the end of 2017, I believe, um, that are sitting on the sidelines. And, you know, I've heard different 
projections as to how much money will actually end up flowing. Nobody expects six trillion to flow into it, but I've heard I've heard as high as as one trillion earlier this morning. One of the panelists uh, threw that number out. I, I believe you said you're expecting five hundred billion. Treasury Department's expecting one hundred billion. But anyway, you 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 cut it. It's it's a very large amount of money that's that's flowing into these zones. Yeah. I, I, I'd, I hesitate to put a number on it, and uh, and, I, and I think so much depends on. You were you were pressured into giving that number this morning. I think giving that number, but and, and really, when I talk about 500 billion, I, I mean more than just the opportunity zones equity uh, itself. I think that you know you're going to see a lot of uh, collaborative capital that comes in, philanthropic debt equity, other types of financing that comes alongside the opportunity zones equity into projects and, and businesses. Um, so all in, it wouldn't surprise me to be in the hundreds of billions uh, easily, especially if you have a lot of strong local leadership that's doing what they can do to facilitate that capital to actually flow for the purposes it was intended. But to me, the scale of capital matters a little bit less, uh, especially at this stage, than what the capital does. What is, what, where is it placed and how is it used? Uh, because a little bit of capital in an early stage company, getting that company off the ground and making it viable to scale and hire and become a successful anchor in the community, that may have started with a very small investment, but the overall impact of that investment is much greater than building a very expensive new building, right? And so I, I think when we think about capital, the, the key question is the where and the how, uh, much more than the how much. Uh, it's, it, I think easily this is going to be the largest economic development initiative in our country's history. By far, by a huge amount. By far. Uh, so we're, we're already well into positive territory as far as scale goes. The dimensions and diversity of Opportunity Zones capital is really the most important piece because, again, if you had $500 billion of capital just going into real estate projects, that's not anywhere close to what we aspired to in putting this together. It's, it's fundamentally about the diversity of needs that communities have and making it easier to finance a bunch of mutually reinforcing priorities so that every investment... Uh, has a higher chance of success because a lot of other investments are happening in the same community, meeting a lot of different types of needs. That's how capitalism works. That's the vision here of a healthy community. It's not just one project here, one project there. And you mentioned new markets. I think new markets has done a, a lot of good with uh, with its uh, resources, but because and it's not designed to do the same things that Opportunity Zones is designed to do. So I, I view these as complementary. Uh, policies, but but on the opportunity zone side, it was meant to differentiate from new markets in its scalability and flexibility. And the fact that you're not getting a deep upfront subsidy as an investor, maybe on the investor side, feels a little worse, right? You'd, you'd like to have a deep upfront subsidy if you're if it's available, but with new markets, that also comes with a cap. It also comes with an intermediary. It comes with process complication that uh, can be very frustrating to navigate. And so the trade-off there is you're not going to get the deep upfront subsidy. Uh, like you get with new markets, but you're also not going to, you're going to have a lot easier ways to deploy that capital available to you in this policy than you do with, with the other ones. Alongside of each other, they can be really powerful. So when you, when you marry opportunity zones with other tools uh, and other incentives, uh, you can see how these are force multipliers for each other. Of course. So John, who's most critical to making the opportunity zones program a success? It's a great question. I, I think the uh, there's an underappreciated role for local leaders in making Opportunity Zones successful. So you have governors that had a statutory role in selecting the zones. And there's nothing by law that compels them or other leaders, mayors or county officials, to do anything else if they don't want to. Uh, but I'd say to actually get the most out of this, you'd want to have a strategy. This is Opportunity Zones is just a tool. It's not a strategy for a community. 
so it, it's a tool that can make a lot of other strategic priorities easier to achieve, but you have to have a plan for how you're going to use them and how you're going to organize the public sector uh, to support the kind of outcomes that you want to see from the private sector. So uh, I, I, I don't necessarily think that local public sector leaders are the most important stakeholder, but they're the most underappreciated stakeholder in this process so far. When you have enlightened mayors who are really leaning into this, who are really leading what their community is doing with Opportunity Zones, like you see in Birmingham, Alabama, for example, uh, the results are just fundamentally different. It, it gets a different response out of the private sector. It gets different stakeholders off the sidelines, the philanthropic sector, uh, major employers. Everybody can pull in the same direction if they're following behind enlightened local leadership. And that's the role of mayors and governors, first and foremost, is to define what are our goals as a community. What resources are we applying to those goals? What do we want to see out of the private sector to help us achieve those goals? And while you want to leave a lot of room for the private sector to work, it's much better for everybody if there's some clarity about what are the fundamental priorities that we're all going to pull towards and where does the public sector have other tools in its toolkit to make it easier to achieve those goals. Zoning, permitting, all kinds of other things that are in the local toolkit, not the federal toolkit that can make a huge difference in whether an investment is viable. So it's not enough to have the incentive. You have to know I can get this project out of the ground or I can get my business permit in a reasonable amount of time or there are other types of practical support and information that the public sector can provide that help to elevate everybody's level of knowledge and expertise. That transparency is so key uh, to making everybody work more effectively. So, so that's one we're really focused on is making sure that the intermediaries in the, in the public sector and uh, local connectors on the ground. There's a group called Opportunity Alabama, for example, that's doing incredible work to facilitate interest from investors to translate that into actual investment into projects and businesses on the ground uh, in, in, in and throughout Alabama. Uh, they are critical to making this thing work over time. And so, uh, so as an organization, we've really put our thumb on the scale and said, we want to do anything we can to help those organizations succeed, because if they're successful, the private market's going to be successful, and the communities are going to be successful as well. Right, so a lot falls to the local leaders and mayors and their economic development offices and county leaders. Tell investors what assets do you have, what your goals are, where your opportunity zones are. A lot of transparency, that, tra that level of transparency would be great. And if, where you can cut the red tape or eliminate the red tape in terms of permitting, that's, that's all very helpful for everybody. Well, John, before we go, I wanted to circle back to the beginning of our conversation, how we talked about how EIG was was first started about 2013. The concept was first started in 2013 and officially formed in 2015. And and this is bipartisan legislation. How frustrating is it for you when the Opportunity Zones program gets labeled as a as a Trump program? It's frustrating because I think it's, that's a shorthand way of dismissing uh, uh, that intrinsic bipartisanship or, or overlooking it. I don't I don't blame folks for, you know, if, if at a 30,000 30, foot level, this passed as part of the tax bill. And if that's all you know about it, then that's the shorthand. The Trump and it tax. does look it does look like a Trump program, then right. if, if that's all you know about it. That's right. And there and the Trump administration obviously is the one implementing this policy as well. So they do have ownership of it uh, in a specific kind of way. Uh, but on the ground in these communities, uh, most Opportunity Zones are in Democratic congressional districts. Uh, many, many, many of the local stakeholders we're working with and who are uh, the most enthusiastic about Opportunity Zones, they're Democrats. They're, they, this, is, this cuts across all the different partisan lines. Uh, and so w what concerns me is when people dismiss it because they're using a partisan lens to understand the policy, uh, rather than understanding that this is a bipartisan idea from the beginning for the reason that Economic distress and the need to get opportunity 
moving to more people in more places uh, is not a partisan exercise. Uh, and fundamentally, this is the kind of thing where we should put our partisan labeling aside and say, very practically speaking, how do we use this tool? That's all it is. It doesn't have agency on its own. It doesn't have a mind of its own. Uh, we give it agency, uh, and communities give it agency when they put it to use. So I, I think that's the right framework to use. And, uh, and and frankly, you know, some of the political stuff is just lazy. It's a way of a way of skirting past the substance and and being dismissive without giving it much thought. And it can definitely be frustrating. Well, John, thanks for joining me today. I mean, without you and EIG, I wouldn't be here talking with you. So I appreciate all the efforts that uh, you and your organization has done to make Opportunity Zones a reality. Before we go, can you tell our listeners now where they can go to learn more about you and EIG? Sure. And it's great to be with you. love the work that you're doing as well. Uh, You can learn more about EIG at our website, eig.org. You can find all of our research, all of our commentary on Opportunity Zones and other issues there. You can also find a lot of interactive data, uh, both on Opportunity Zones uh, nationwide and uh, community well-being nationwide. So eig.org is where you can find all of our great work. Great. Well, for our listeners out there, I'll have show notes on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And you'll find links to all of the resources that John and I discussed on today's show, including the Distressed Communities Index and links to eig.org as well. John, thanks again. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit opportunitydb.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting opportunitydb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.